Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning and Merry Christmas, Mercy Church. Yeah. Listen, um, before we jump into our message, I want to tell you, we've got a bunch of, uh, like a handful, small handful of values that we have as a ministry here that kind of help us keep us going and who God's called us to be and everything. One of those is that we help people take their next step in following Jesus, whatever that next step is, right? Uh, listen, we believe that that step, whatever it is, and everybody has one, was never meant to be taken alone. We believe that your walk with God is indeed a community project. In fact, the Bible's going to say that you're to take those steps in a local church. We got pastors and deacons and brothers and sisters. And so we want to help you take that step if that's here at Mercy Church. Because y'all, I know that connecting to a local church can be hard, even here at Mercy. Uh, My family and I, if you're newer with us, we were out on a sabbatical for four months this year. And we visited a lot of different local churches. And it was just kind of... It's strange being a stranger, right? Where you got to like introduce yourself a bunch of different times and everything else. I know that can be hard. So you might even feel that way with us. If you're new or new-ish around here, we want to help you take your next step. Try to make that figuring out if mercy is the church for you as easy as possible. So we do something. We're doing it this morning after all of our services. Um, It's called Starting Point, and it's going to be right after the service. It's about a 15-minute introduction into who we are as a church, all right? So I want to invite you to come hear about who we are, meet some of our pastoral team, ask your questions, and we'll try and help you take whatever your next step is. With that said, let's hop back into Advent, into Advent, our annual celebration of Advent. Like I told you last week, it's the Latin word for arrival, and the church has long been using this to talk about the celebration of the arrival of Christ. And for us this year, we're hopping over to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, a book I told you last week. It's often referred to as the fifth gospel because it's so filled with prophecy about God's promised Savior who would come one day to set the world free from darkness, the darkness of sin and death. Well, last Sunday, we saw how the advent or arrival of Jesus was God's answer specifically to the darkness in our world. We said basically the kind of theme last week from Isaiah 9, darkness doesn't win. Right, I gave you six promises about Jesus arriving and defeating darkness. Well, today we're going to go over to chapter 11 in Isaiah. And look, he's just going to keep the promises of the advent of the coming Savior, the arrival of the Savior. He's just going to keep those promises flowing. He's going to switch over from the light and darkness metaphor we had in chapter 9 to talk instead about how Jesus is a coming king. But while he moves from the light and darkness over to the kingdom language, he's still saying the arrival of this Messiah is filled with promises for God's people. Uh, I spent, you know, this week studying chapter 11. I was like, all right, here's the best title I got for you guys, because, you know, I'm not super creative for uh, sermons and stuff like that, illustrations, everything else. So my title for this sermon is seven more promises about Jesus. Okay. (laughs) So. You probably are clued into what next week's is going to be uh, as we keep going through Isaiah. Uh, But look, my hope is 
that the, I really, I hope the avalanche of promises about Jesus will impact how we respond to Christmas, right? Instead of just going through the motions of the familiar holiday or something like that, let's kind of follow Isaiah's lead. Isaiah, the one who said, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord a new song to all the earth, a new song. Why? Because the savior has come and let's not let this be familiar and therefore just going through the motions, But instead, let's let these promises impact us and see what God would have for us this Christmas. Let's ask God to increase our love of him and our belief that he's still working now. So we're going to start in Isaiah 11. We're going to start in verse 1. Something that I love to do with you guys is ask you if you are ready for us to go through the Bible because I love the Bible. So both campuses, let me ask you, are you ready? Let's do this. All right. Verse 1. Then... A shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Oh, this is so good, okay? Isaiah's writing to God's people, Israel, and they got a problem. Now, remember I told you there's like a whole time travel, but not actually time travel, but time travel thing going on with the book of Isaiah where he's looking into the near future and then to the far distant future as he's writing. He's writing to God's people, Israel, who got a problem. There's an evil, more powerful kingdom of Assyria, and just like Isaiah said it would happen, they're going to come in and bring this furious attack against Israel. Now remember, this is a nation that God said he would raise up. That's what we talked about last week. And God would raise up Assyria to bring this evil you know, wrath onto them as a judgment for their sin. But God also said, I'm not going to let him wipe you out. Right? And when God decided it was time, this is awesome, you read about this, Isaiah 37, God decides it's time. It's like that day, he sends one of his angels, and one of his angels wipes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And then the Assyrians tuck tail and run, understandably. Now, Isaiah 9 and 10 said this would happen. In fact, God even called, goes so far as to call it Assyria his axe that would chop down Israel. See the metaphor of this tree thing? Assyria would be his axe, Israel's a tree, it gets chopped down, but the problem is it almost feels like there's a conflict happening because we know that God has promised someone's going to sit on the throne of David forever, but it looks like David's throne and everything's been chopped down. What do we do? Well, that's where Isaiah 11 comes in and opens with this chopping down the tree metaphor, saying that even though that all that's left is a stump, one day, a shoot, new growth, will emerge from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse is King David's dad. Jesse was a nobody from a nobody little town, oh, little town of, can you guess it? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yes, alarm bells should be going off in your head. And Christmas time's just kind of helping that a little bit, right? This is a bonus promise from Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And a shoot is new growth. Why does it matter? God had promised that one of David's descendants, Jesse being in that line, of course, is David's dad, one of David's descendants is going to sit on the throne. He's saying this is going to happen. And who is the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse? Sunday school answer time, right? I, I grew up um, going to, my parents took me to church. So I grew up going to church, which means um, a re- huge blessing in my life that I did. But also there's some funny things that happen when you're, and I'm sure it's happening with our kiddos in our kids ministry. There's like, um, you know, Sunday school answers. 
You know, you come to church and your teacher, I'll never forget this, uh, like Miss Myrtle, um, she was in the like younger elementary group and she's going, okay, kids. And she's just trying to like teach us through creation story. And she's like, now this animal right here, what is it? It's black and white stripes and it's got four legs. What is it? It lives in Africa. What is it? I'm like, well, it sounds like a zebra, but we're in church. So Jesus, you know, (laughs) that's like, what's the right answer to this? It's Jesus, God, or angels. It's got to be one of these three, and I'm going with it, right? Okay, here's the deal. When it comes to Isaiah's promises, the Sunday school answer is the right one. It is Jesus. Who's the stump? Who's the, the new growth that it's referring to? It really is Jesus, and it leads right to our first promise today. Jesus is the faithful king that you can trust. Isaiah is saying, even though God allowed Israel to suffer for their sin, he's not going to leave them. He's never going to leave them. He'll never break his promises. And Matthew 1 opens saying with this lineage, you ever read it? You're like, oh, this lineage, it can be boring. No, no. The point is God is faithful to his promises. Jesus is the one from the line of David. And some of you need that today because just, just because the Lord, maybe he's letting you suffer the consequences of your sin. It doesn't mean he's left you. It doesn't mean that he's left you. He loves you, and Isaiah's here to remind you of that. He's always faithful to his promises, and in Christ, he promises if you'll return to him, you can experience that renewal in your soul that comes through his forgiveness. Y'all, Jesus fulfilled some 300 promises from God written by various authors in Scripture over various centuries. The town he was born in, who gave birth to him, the miracles he performed, the nature of his death with every step he took and every word that he spoke, he was declaring God is faithful. If he's faithful to fulfill all these promises, if God is faithful to raise Jesus from the dead, then he really is faithful to forgive you. He's faithful to be present with you. He's faithful to strengthen you. He's faithful to deliver you and faithful to bring you into glory with him one day. He's faithful. But my question is, and this is why this is the first promise, will you trust him? If he really is faithful, will you trust him? And trust is evident through action. i give you an example. Right now in my life, I'm trusting him in grief. Um, 2022, I've experienced more death that's like personally connected to me than I think I have, especially at least in any year as an adult. So I read 1 Thessalonians 4, and it says that I can grieve, but I grieve as one with hope, which means my grief is different because I believe Jesus is faithful. That's just like practical application into my life. I grieve differently because he's faithful to his promise that I'll see my friend again. How I manage my money is different because I believe Jesus is a faithful king. He was generous towards me, and so I am generous towards his mission, and I believe his promise that that'll actually be good and even bless my life. That's trust. I forgive others because I believe he is faithful to forgive me. The evidence of trust is in my actions. And this shoot from the stump emerged, remember this, after hundreds of years of what it seemed like silence. The line of David at the time of Jesus is a royal forgotten line, but never forgotten by God. And I say that in case you become just tired enough to be a little jaded, just tired of waiting on God that maybe you're a little bitter towards him. And Isaiah is shouting to you, he's still king, he's still in control, and he's still faithful. Will you trust him? Verse 2. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Ah, now this spirit of the Lord resting on him is actually, it's a familiar expression throughout Israel's history. God would place his spirit onto some of its kings. It was God empowering them for the task of leading Israel. But each time what you see happen as you read through first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, you read through this, what you see happen is the leader would fall into sin. Even the great David falls, second Samuel falls into sin and the spirit of the Lord would leave. The spirit of the Lord comes on Saul, David, and then is taken away. Isaiah 61 says this coming mystery king, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And the gospel of Matthew, what does he say? And by the way, Matthew's a great place to go to see Jesus fulfilling all these promises of Isaiah. He says that at Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends like a dove. Verse 16 of Matthew 3. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. Again, the reason we're in Isaiah is because every single thing Jesus does in his ministry that is recorded in the Gospels is fulfilling a promise from the Old Testament. And a voice from heaven said that God the Father... As God the Spirit descends onto God the Son, this is a beautiful Trinitarian picture here. That has a whole other sermon and everything. But this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jump back over to Isaiah, and verse 2 tells you how the Spirit empowers him. He'll have the wisdom of God, true wisdom, greater than the world's wisdom. I mean, think about it. Think about the nativity scene where three wise men, many even say those guys were, they were kings. They come to meet Jesus. The scene is important because these grown men filled with wisdom bow down to a child. And the message is that the wisdom of the world is far inferior to the wisdom of God. Jesus confounds the wisdom of his day. And in doing so reveals to us what true wisdom is. He did in how he was born. He did it in how he lived and how he died and how he rose again. And over and over, what he's saying is you're not going to find true life living according to the wisdom of the world. But instead, Colossians 2, 3, in him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in that, we find our second promise. Jesus is the wise king that you can follow. So the obvious response for us is, what wisdom are we building our pursuit of happiness and security on? You know, the obvious one that stands out to me is the American dream. That if you get a good job, you'll earn enough money that you will have security in your life. Or maybe it's the dream of one day getting married. And if you get married, you will finally be complete. Maybe it's having kids. High school student, maybe it's getting into the college of your dreams. Or maybe it's just making that team. Or maybe it's just being accepted by that group of friends. Think about it. This is a good reflection for you this week. What wisdom has crept into your heart and said, if you just get that, you'll be okay? Jobs, friends, spouses, kids, I, just, I promise you, it is biblical truth that I've experienced in my life. They will all let you down. The American dream should be called the American disappointment because friends will disappoint you. And by the way, you will disappoint them as one of the group, okay? Kids, I, 
I love my kids. They're exhausting sinners, right? (laughs) Spouses, these are just people that you sin against and they sin against you for life. Like that's what you have there built in. Jobs, they're filled with disappointment and monotony. And again, all these things have their good. What I'm telling you is they're not going to fill up your soul. There's only one source of true wisdom, and it's nothing like we expected. Jesus was unemployed, homeless, single. His friends betrayed him, and he was executed in his early 30s. And none of that was a disappointment. It was the most powerful, wise, successful act of love in history. But it makes no sense to the world. He says, if you follow him, you're going to have true life. But will you follow him when it doesn't make sense by the wisdom of this day? Verse 3. His delight, so good. We're just talking about Jesus and his promises for us. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. I'm going to keep going to verse 5, 4 and 5 in a moment. Verse 3 is so big to me. The true king is not going to look at outward appearance. This is built off verse 2. It's true wisdom. The real king doesn't look at the outward appearance. Instead, he looks inside. This is 1 Samuel 16, 7. When God is telling Samuel to see David and not the others, he says he judges the heart. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. He's talking about Samuel's older, uh, David's older brother. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The heart. And this is God's promise to you. Oh, this is so good. Jesus judges the heart, and he still loves you. He judges the heart, sees your heart. This is clearly, I mean, you see it right there. It's good news and bad news. The reason this follows verse 2 is that there's a spiritual idea masked as wisdom in our age that suggests I can do enough good things to be considered a good person. I can be justified as a good person. That same wisdom of our age says that if you've made a mess of your life and you're not a good person, according to your standard, you need to clean yourself up before you come to God. So people stay away from church because they think that it's a place where God judges messy people and filled with hypocrites who are messy and pretend not to be. So to the self-righteous person, God says, your resume doesn't matter. Only your heart does. And that's bad news. Because we often try to hide our true selves behind our resumes. And to the person on the other side who has wrecked their life, this is good news that he judges the heart and still loves you because he doesn't judge you by your past, but it's bad news in that your past actions came from a heart that was motivated by something. So the news is that we all, both the self-righteous sinner and the broken sinner, fall short of God's standards. That's why we need Christmas. It was Christmas said God sent someone who would not be a sinner. His actions were perfect. His motives were pure. And so he was judged perfect. And God said, that is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the gift is that this perfect one came to exchange places with you and I. It's a promise of Christmas, y'all. God's judgment was taken by Christ and Christ's acceptance was given to us. That's the gospel. You don't have to earn your acceptance by God. You couldn't, even if you put forward the best resume possible, you can't. But you can receive the gift. The gift of acceptance by God offered to you through Jesus' payment for your sin. You see the gift. 
Romans 6.23, we're sharing this with someone Friday. The wages of sin is death for all of us, for we are all sinners. But the gift of God. And there's something about that word. That's exactly what it is. And it just rings maybe a little bit um, truer to us during this holiday season, right? The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's only in him, but it's extended to you. And my question is not, did you attend church just like I did growing up? Have you attended a lot of church and done a lot of things? A gift is to be received. Have you received it from God the Father? Maybe today is the day you receive that gift. That's the gift of Christmas. Isaiah keeps going. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. All right, here's our next promise. Jesus rescues the poor and vindicates the oppressed. In other words, he's the king that gives voice to the voiceless, hope to the hopeless. He welcomes in. Read the Gospels. He welcomes in the poor and the needy. When the disciples try to keep the little children from coming to him, he says, no, 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 no. Let them come. Because it's people like this that the kingdom of heaven belongs to. He goes into the house of disgrace, we saw a couple of weeks ago, to heal the man that couldn't walk. He goes toward the prostitute. He goes toward the blind beggar, toward the man with leprosy, toward the demon-possessed boy. He goes toward Peter's mother-in-law. He goes toward the grieving father's child. He goes toward the tomb of Lazarus, all because Isaiah 53 says he will take our weaknesses. He will carry our diseases. Church, he came into a poor family, and he loves and he will vindicate the poor and oppressed. Plain and simple, I believe the church, Christ's bride, is called to be his earthly representative. I mean, that's just abundantly clear. He even goes so far as to say, you will do greater signs and wonders than I've even done. Why not greater in power, but greater in number? Because we will be his agents all across the world, loving what he loves. And so we must love who he loves. James tells us true religion is looking after the widow and orphan. If King Jesus rescues the poor and vindicates the oppressed, then it would seem, it would seem that we should be set, the eyes of our hearts should be set on those groups in our community. Because we can't pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, and then avoid those he loves. We can't. But on top of that, as we move into loving those he loves, We will be better for it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll share more about this with you next year um, in January, but one of my deep convictions is that we must pray for and reach out to the hurting here in our local communities. Not because it's like the duty of the middle class or something like that. It's the honor of the church to do this, to love who Jesus loves. I'm thankful for our efforts this Christmas with the Queen City Pregnancy Resource Center and with the Charlotte Dream Center. I'm glad we're donating, but also I'm I'm so glad that we're giving our time together to go and serve alongside them. I don't know if you know this, our student ministry here at Mercy, middle and high school students, they go out one Saturday every month to serve with the Charlotte Dream Center. Some of us need to be led by our students and go join them and see what God is doing and then get in on it. Let's be where Jesus was 
and then love as Jesus loved. And in doing so, I promise you he's going to bless that. Like in your life and in mine. We'll discover the joy of our salvation afresh in a new way. Verse 6. All right, verse 6 is going to bring about a change in what's happening here. It's going to move from the individual to kind of a, a scene that unfolds. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. What do you do with this? <laughs> the verse, first verse is clearly talking about Jesus. Everything, verses 1 through 5, the New Testament picks up on and says, look, this is about Jesus. But it gets a little bit different, verses 6 through 9. Sounds like some bizarre Narnian version of Animal Planet, right? Watch the wolf with his long claws and sharp teeth as he snuggles up with a herd of sheep. Like, I don't, it's, a, it's a weird thing. Isaiah can't be talking about right now. That's not the way our world looks today. You put a lion and a fattened calf together, you have to go get another fattened calf, right? It's different. So what's going on? Again, this is the deal with Isaiah's prophecies. They move in and out, talking about the first coming and second coming of Jesus. Uh, I heard... Pastor John Piper explained Isaiah's perspective here like this. Imagine Isaiah is looking at a mountain range from really far away and then just took it to North Carolina. And, um, think of it this way. If you look at the Blue Ridge Mountains from far away down I-40, the mountains appear to be beside each other. But the closer you get, the more you realize some of them are up close and some of them are really far away. That's kind of like Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah is looking at the two from far away, but one is actually closer than the other. And we, in our time in history, we stand in the valley between the two mountains, between the two comings of Jesus, which means we have the great hope of salvation from Jesus's first coming. So we celebrate Advent, but we're still waiting on the complete effects of his kingdom to come in the second Advent. And verse nine says, one day the whole earth, looking at that second mountain, We'll be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and there will be no more pain or hurt. And that's our promise. His kingdom renews the earth, so we have hope in our suffering. This is so big for the Christian life. Because I, I don't know if maybe this, is, I, don't, I don't know if maybe it was ever said to you, maybe it wasn't said, but just implied. When you become a Christian, that does not mean you will not suffer. You will still suffer. In fact, one of the clearest promises of Scripture it's that you will suffer as a follower of Jesus. Sickness and natural disaster are evil and still present in our world. They're the effect of sin on our world. Our world is broken and not the way that it should be. The promise here is that what God started in Jesus' resurrection, when he reversed death, one day he's going to do that with all of creation. And there will be no more pain, anger, sadness, hurt, or death. That's the hope of the second mountain, the second coming of our king. In verse 10, on that day, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. One day, all the nations will look to him. 
That hope is what Christians behold, not just at Christmas, it's all year long. Notice verse 10. Uh, Y'all, you know I'm big on this. Like every word matters in the Bible, okay? It's not the shoot of Jesse now, is it? Now he's talking about the root. Verse 1 said shoot. How can you be both a root and a shoot? I love that they rhyme. By the way, that's just a little bonus for me. Um, How can you be both an ancestor of Jesse and a descendant of Jesse? Well, you can only do that if you're God. (laughs) The one who created Jesse will become the one born into Jesse's line. Only, the only way that God could fulfill his promises right here in this little text is if God himself was born into Jesse's line. That's who we behold at Christmas. God is born. The creator of Jesse becomes the descendant of Jesse. Jesus, God with us, the prince of peace. And his peace, it will be restful, glorious rest. Talking about the hope of new heaven and new earth. Here's his promise. His mission, King Jesus, is to bring all peoples into his glorious kingdom. That's what I hope you hear is the spirit behind our Christmas missions offering. It's that our God is a missionary God. And Christmas is a reminder that he's chosen his church to be the agent of proclaiming his gospel to the ends of the earth. To fulfill his plan right here in verse 10 to bring all nations into that glorious resting place. So the people groups in Nairobi, Kenya, where we just planted a church this year. And the people groups in closed countries where we send some of our missionaries into. Those people groups will stand beside us in complete wholeness. Mental, spiritual, physical wholeness. And we will all sing together, somehow all understanding each other, we're all singing in our native tongues, hallelujah, worthy is the lamb to be praised. I told you I've dealt with a lot of uh, death this year. This passage, I always think, when I read Isaiah 11, uh, 1 through 10, I think of this boy, T.J. Anderson. He was the first child that we lost as a church family, died at eight years old of cancer. And I think about, and I remember thinking about it when I did his funeral. Instead of fighting cancer, he'll be playing with cobras. That little boy was wild. I know exactly that's where he's going to be. He's over there by the cobra den. <laughs> because sickness will be gone and fear and pain will be gone. It sound, I know it sounds like the ending of one of those cheesy Hallmark movies I love to bash. I know. It sounds too good to be true. This is a hard thing for skeptics to believe. I recognize that. But the hope of heaven gives such peace and perseverance to Christians now. And everybody's resting in something being true. Everybody is. Some future hope. And the way I heard one guy put it is the most remarkable thing about this story, the great story of love, the greatest one ever told, the greatest story of hope ever told, the most remarkable thing about it is that it's true. When you finally realize it's true and Place your faith, your trust that this God is faithful. You'll behold Christmas as you're meant to. Your heart and mind will race with wonder and awe, just like the three wise men did, as you stare into the glory of the nativity. The glory of it, not just where a child has been born of a virgin, but the king has arrived. The faithful and wise king you can trust. The judge who sees down to your own heart and still loves you despite all he sees. The king who vindicates the poor and the oppressed because he loves them and his power will be used to lift up, not press down. 
the king who makes all things new and brings all people to himself. He's the one true king, King Jesus. He's all holy, all powerful, all good, and in his goodness, he has directed his love towards you and I, his people. I want to close um, in a time just of letting you respond to the Lord and to all of these promises we've heard. So if you would, both of our campuses, if you would bow your head, get into a posture of prayer. This is just to give you a moment to respond to the Lord, and I will guide you in that. Our worship teams will probably come and get in place. Don't let that distract you from a response with the Lord. My question, as you bow in prayer, are you able to say right now, And if you can say it, go ahead and tell it to him. King Jesus, I trust that you are faithful. I trust you. If you've never received his offer of forgiveness for your sins, I want to invite you to do that today. Romans 6.23, the wage of sin, the payment for your sin is death. But the gift of God, gifts must be received. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you receive? You say, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. And so today I receive your offer of forgiveness. I receive it. I believe you died for me, for my sins. I believe you rose again. I receive new life that you give me. Thank you, God, for saving me. Christians in here, I want to call you back to your first love in Christ. Ask him, God, I believe you're faithful. Will you show me my next step? I believe you see my heart. Maybe you need to repent of something that you've been just holding back from, from a sin you've done towards someone. Maybe just you thought it was private. The Lord sees. Come back to him today. Father, where we have overlooked who you love, I repent. Would we be a people that love who you love? Thank you for the upside down nature of Christmas where the poor and the oppressed are vindicated and exalted. And you model it. Lord, we love you. We need you. We praise you. We are thankful that you see our hearts, but we get to walk out of here this morning remembering you love us still. And it is in that love, not fear of condemnation, not the burden of guilt, but in the receiving of your love that we walk forward trusting you. Would our lives be conformed to you because of your great love on us? Father, I pray that's the testimony of this church as we continue to rejoice in all the promises and bask in and be in awe of and worship you in light of all of your promises in Christmas. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen.